Hi, welcome to the Brain Food Show. I used to do a podcast back in the day, and I always used to say the episode number, so I'm always at the beginning of each one taken slightly off guard by the fact that I don't have to mention an episode number because I have no idea what episode we're on. Episode something. Today, this is the second part in our series on computers? Yeah, and we should mention that uh, for iTunes US people in some Europe, uh, the first part isn't showing up on iTunes for no apparent reason. It shows up everywhere else. And also in iTunes India, it definitely shows up. So it's good you check that one. Yeah, go check out number one if you haven't seen it. If you really need this episode, go switch your iTunes over to iTunes India. Did it come up on other platforms like Stitcher and and whatnot? You're an Android, right? Yeah, it comes comes up everywhere. And uh, yeah, if you go to the website, you can see it and listen to it as well. Um, Todayifoundout.com and then just hit the, the podcast you know, tab at the top. Importantly, though, to understand today's episode, you don't have to have listened to last week's, but maybe I should say that you do no. because then people will actually go back and listen. Yeah. You don't. Yeah. Uh, today we're moving on. We're talking about something else. I, I realize, like, I always wanted to take feedback on how this show works and stuff. I realize anyone who's listening to this for the first time probably doesn't have any idea what's going on. So either we should get like an intro where we have some like uh, nice sounding man or woman reader. Hi. You're listening to The Brain Food Show, the podcast where we talk about stuff, or we'd have to really think about our comedy. Yeah. But this is a show where we talk about stuff, <laughs> where, we, where we explore interesting facts from history or something, all the present day, things like that. Today, uh, we're going to be doing a quick fact is how we're going to start things, and then we're going to move on to our main computing content. I noticed the quick fact has absolutely nothing to do <laughs> like, with the main content. I, t- I like Are you that. even trying with I this? I like that better. <laughs> No, I'm very specifically trying to do something that's completely ah. different, uh, just in case, you know, if people aren't interested. We should probably say the, the what the today is going to be about is just the history, sort of going back, who invented the internet, who invented email, who invented the web. It? it was all Al all Gore, right? It's got to be Al Gore. I <laughs> yeah, we're going to address that one, and it's actually probably different than what people think. It's not Al Gore. Uh, it probably didn't become a meme because it was like, Al Gore invented, no. said he invented the internet, and he did. Yeah, but... <laughs> But it turns out he had like a big involvement, actually. Okay. Um, but anyways, yeah, uh, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. All right. You want to lead the way with a quick fact? Yeah. So it's so a quick fact. This one, I just it's one of my favorite because it's just hilariously absurd. Uh, animals. It's, it has to do with animal mating. So, all right. So bed bugs, Who doesn't right? Love animal you know, mating? Bed bugs. This is, you know, that's a way yeah. to get some YouTube. Yeah, animal mating is is hilarious. There's so many funny, funny stories and things. But anyways, bed bugs are one of the uh, slightly more unique. So the male bed bugs, you know, they're going along and they'll see a you know, pleasantly plump. It doesn't matter if it's a male or a female bed bug, as long as they're pleasantly plump. They, they want, they like, they like the it's big ones, you know, they like them big. Yeah. And uh, they'll go along and then instead of actually using, if it happens to be a uh-huh. female, instead of actually using the female's reproductive tract, instead they will use their hypodermic genitalia to literally stab the female or male. Oh in the body and inject the sperm directly into the bloodstream Uh, and this is this is how they they mate it works because the sperm then travel along in the blood to a special if it happens to be a female uh the in a little storage structure in her body and then you know that gets her pregnant and then you know they make nice little bed bug babies that everyone loves and uh yeah and this is this is basically the bed bug mating which is just hilariously absurd i think i'm amazed that works i'm amazed like evolution hasn't worked out you know why does that why does the female have a uh, like (laughs) at some point (laughs) at some point it must have been necessary and then at some point the 
the other bed bugs were, you know, and then to, to then evolve the the male <laughs> penis strong yeah. enough to then penetrate the, it's just the body. Just one day a bed bug was like, hmm, I think my penis is sharp enough. <laughs> yeah. To stab wow. you. And then, yeah. That's, uh, yeah. yeah, that's that's bed bug mating. Thanks for that. Starting off strong. People tuned in <laughs> for inventing the internet and already they've heard about sperm being injected <laughs> into the blood of bed bugs. Welcome yeah. to the Brain Food Show. <laughs> the internet. How did this come to be? The internet. That, not Al Gore. The who? The, yeah, yeah. But uh, Al Gore, uh, critical to certain aspects of it, which we'll, we'll get to. But the, um, so the, the World Wide Web, you know, this was in fact uh, initially invented by basically one person. I mean, obviously these sort of things, uh, as we say before, it doesn't get invented in a vacuum. Lots of people have similar ideas uh -huh. and things. But that one, that one, you know, basically you can kind of look back at one guy for the most part. And then, but uh, but when you're looking at the internet, it's a little bit different. It, there was a lot of people involved in various aspects to build this, like you know, monolithic system that just works. And so to kind of get to the hold up, dude. I'm sorry. I know you have a background in computer science and stuff. I definitely don't. Yeah. Isn't the World Wide Web the internet? Those different things. No, no. And this is this. The World Wide Web is a service, and it's the de facto service. I mean, this is why everyone thinks. Because uh, that is the internet, but it's it's just a service that runs on top of the internet, and you have all sorts of other services uh, that a lot of people use all the time, like stuff with your phone sometimes and things like this that have nothing to do with the the World Wide Web. Uh, when you're um, so it's yeah, like a part of the internet, I mean, or it's like yeah. So so the internet is is just like you know the thing. All these applications. I mean, you could think of it like that. You could think of it like an application running on the. I mean, it doesn't really run on the internet. That's not really what the World Wide Web. But you can think of it like that, I guess, if you want to just kind of. <laughs> Uh, step back and be a slightly inaccurate. That sounds good. Uh, it's basically, you could think, almost think of it like the internet is like your computer or an operating system or something, and then you have these applications running on top of it, uh, these various ones or something, and that's like, I'm sure all the computer science people are like cringing right now and be like, mm, no, that's not quite accurate, but, you know, kind of like that. So if I, it's an analogy, so uh, if yeah. I go to www.bbc.com or whatever, this is World Wide Web, because that's what www stands for, right? Yeah, but it doesn't have to have the www. It's really uh, because the, I mean, that is originally the intent was then uh, have that specified that this is, I'm, I'm wanting to look at the, w, the World Wide Web service that's running on some server, you know, somewhere or, or mm -hmm. some machine. And then the, you have the, the World Wide Web server there. So the www do that, but because, and it would kind of specify what port basically by that. And so usually by default, port 80 is what the, what's happening under the service. But um, but because the World Wide Web became sort of the de facto thing, and especially when you're talking about like the domain domain name system yeah. like that, uh, when you when you can often just get rid of that www, and most most hosts like people who run the servers and things will have just said, okay, if you're not specifying, we're we're gonna just assume you want the World Wide Web when you're doing like the HTTP protocol and stuff like that, um, and so it's kind of the default. But it doesn't have to be. I mean, you could really it could be anything. It doesn't have to say www. There's really whatever the server people want to do uh but yes so it is just sort of like this sort of application running and when you access that website that is exactly exactly what is I mean, happening so many questions for you in today's episode i can already tell it's gonna yeah. well this is good for like once in my life i'll be able to use my master's degree so uh, and if yeah. i'm it, what's an example of something that's not World Wide web because i always think like if i i know i don't have to but if I go to almost any website i'm fairly sure if i type in www it will still work it won't be like mm, it's not there like Facebook Messenger or something like on my phone or yeah. So the web is the web. I mean, in a nutshell, the web is just these documents. So you have these these documents being linked around, yeah. right? 
uh, and these files and things. And it's all linked in this like hypertext system that you can link around. And that is just the web. I mean, it's just this the service that serves a file. You you then you you know you request a file. The server says, "Oh, you just requested whatever file on my uh -huh. server," and you you're doing it in this you know URL format. Uh -huh. But it is just requesting a file on a server, and then it it returns it. And so then so you have like the gaming is different in that you're you you know you're using like some other thing where it's kind of like syncing things and streaming and stuff like that. So you have all these different things running on the internet doing different things but for the web for the web we are just talking uh, serving files basically it's just serving a you know a text file basically that then uh you know it requests data you know images and things like this you know serving an image file and and this sort of thing it's just it's just a service for serving files in a, in like a nutshell I gotcha. like this this is going to be the hard part of this whole thing is this like how to not be technical but also try to be accurate so forgive me for being inaccurate in I'll, I'll try and because I don't know about this stuff. I like use the internet. Yeah. I go on websites. That's kind of so. Hopefully, if I yeah. didn't understand, most people in, in at at its core, like when you when you're opening a file on your computer, that's I mean, you're just clicking. You open the file, and then it opens in you know Word or whatever. But on the web, you're using a browser instead of Word. Um, you're using a browser to open that file, and then the browser knows how to do stuff with the file to display the image or video or stream this or that. Uh, in the in the appropriate way, but it is just a file service basically mm -hmm. at, at, in its core. Okay, good. That's all that's happening. Which is also why creating a web server, like the actual software for it, uh, I mean, like a very basic one, is very easy to do. This was, I mean, uh, networking class, like maybe like a two hundred level was all it was in college. Was I mean, this was one of our first assignments: create a web server mm -hmm. uh, that that does, and it wasn't very hard. It's like a few hours to to not you know get a very basic one. Um, going that, that works that's serving files there you go i learned something today already yeah. and i <laughs> we haven't really got to the invention of this thing yet but carry on sorry for the sorry for the distraction All hopefully right. we clarified a few terms for people or at least me so going back to the uh to the to the how did the internet come uh -huh. about so of course it starts with it all starts with sputnik one when the the ussr like the sputnik like the one okay. yeah yeah so this happens yeah. uh october 4th 1957 and this took a lot of the world like, whoa, really? Like, that's pretty, that's a leap that took us all uh -huh. by surprise. And so the the U.S. was like, all right, let's create an agency that basically to prevent stuff like this from happening first. And they, they created the Advanced Research Project Agency in 1958 as kind of a direct response to this. And this, this people know it today as DARPA. Have you yes, heard of DARPA? You know? Yeah, so it's the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. So that's kind of... This sounds like the beginning to like a comic book story. It's awesome. Yeah, DARPA is amazing. They've, amazing. they've come out with so many cool things. Uh, but so this, I mean, it's in a way, it's literally their mission, which I know we're going to get onto in a moment. But their mission yeah. is kind of make cool things. Yeah, exactly. And this, uh, so we're going to, uh, you'll have you read yeah. from their the very website on on what their mission is. To quote, the agency's specific mission was to quote prevent technological surprises like the launch of Sputnik, which signaled that the Soviets had beaten the U.S. into space. The mission statement has evolved over time. Today, DARPA's mission is still to prevent technological surprise to the US, but also to create technological surprise for our enemies. I love that they use enemies. It's so sinister. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. And so so with with this, when trying to create this, they had we've had various universities and laboratories all over the place trying to do similar stuff and work together. And this obviously, I mean, like, you know, faxing stuff around or mailing stuff around data and documents is not the best way and not terribly secure way to to do things and so they they there was a need for some sort of a network 
to sort of work to kind of synchronize all this stuff and everyone can work together more seamlessly. And this brings in a guy by the name of J.C.R. Licklider. Great name. And uh, he, yeah, and he came up with the best name for the internet that should have been the name like this. <laughs> so you want yeah, to yeah, he came up with the Intergalactic Computer Network. Although yeah. he, do, he does understand the meaning of intergalactic, right? Like it, in between galaxies. Yeah, it's but super that's, cool. That's Don't a get way me wrong. better name than internet or or what they <laughs> called the first uh, iteration, the ARPANET. Uh, but so, yeah, intergalactic, planetary, intergalactic. <laughs> yeah. So this guy, he came up with the idea, basically just have many different computer systems all in- interconnected with each other. They can exchange data, all that. So it's it's quite just one sort of seamless system. All all everything's connected. Mm-hmm. So he thought up the idea after he was he was basically dealing with. Um, so they had like point to point connections and stuff at this point from between some of the networks um, or some computers, I should say. So he had like uh, he so he had one. He was specifically dealing with three. One was in Santa Monica, one was in the University of California, Berkeley, and uh, one was in MIT. And then he has a great, uh, great quote about his sort of dealing with these systems and the inspiration for the, for the ARP, what would be the ARPANET and then the internet. For each of these three terminals, I had three different sets of user commands. So if I was talking online with someone from SDC and I wanted to talk to someone I knew at Berkeley or MIT about this, I had to get up from the SDC terminal, go over and log into the other terminal and get in touch with them. I said, oh man, it's obvious what to do. If you have these three terminals, there ought to be one terminal that goes anywhere you want to go where you have interactive computing. That idea is the ARPANET. Yeah, so so this, I, what I love about that is if you if you kind of get there, like the inspiration for the ARPANET and then the, you know, the internet that came after mm-hmm. uh, was because someone didn't want to get up and yeah, get out of their chair and go somewhere else. That's just great. That's like human, that's pretty much like all human you know, innovation comes from that on some level, right? Yeah. Like just the being lazy. That's, yeah. that's just how things get done. Literally, the out. first thing I looked at was a, a solution to laziness. Like my microphone used to be on a desk stand. And then I realized I had to lean forward too much to use said microphone. So yeah. I, got an, I bought an extending, I didn't invent it, but I bought an extending microphone stand yeah. so I can comfortably sit back in my chair while podcasting. Literal yeah. laziness. Yeah, this is like the source of most <laughs> human innovation is just laziness. It's great. Oh, and dear. so this this was the, the ARPANET. So, of course, the problem, of course, at this point was you have the, you know, the impending threat of nuclear war. And so the system had to be designed such that it was decentralized. So you didn't have like one single node, like a hierarchical thing where one node where if you took that out, like no, none of the other computers can talk to each other um, correctly. Oh, and so, so if they, they had, like nuked the central thing, all of the other nukes yeah. would stop working. Or uh, yeah, the computers wouldn't be able to talk to each other, so they had to they had to avoid a system like that. So they had to make it decentralized, so they could you could take out you know whole branches of the internet and everything else could still communicate, and just by the design of the system. Um, and so this this kind of you know um, the, some of the key players involved here was an American engineer by the name of Paul Barron, and then uh, uh, Leonard Kleinrock and Donald Davies, and mm-hmm. so they they kind of developed this sort of packet switching system. And so the general idea here is so. And this packet system actually has some other benefits too. Uh, so for instance, say you want to stream a really large file, which back then, of course, wasn't a very large file. But even today, like when you're streaming a video file from Netflix, right? Yeah. If Netflix, if you had to like request that file and then Netflix creates a connection to your computer and then their servers just stream that entire, you know, four or five gigabyte file or whatever it's going to be. Yeah. Um, that I mean, that wouldn't work. I mean, Netflix would very quickly have their systems be overloaded. So what they actually do 
is they everything gets broken up into these packets, and this is sort of the core of how the how the internet works. Um, so you have these packets of the data file. So you have this, you know, whatever four gigabyte file or whatever whatever it is, yeah. uh, and then you just break it up into tiny little chunks. And these little packets have the information of you know where they need to go, um, all this sort of. They have in, uh, what order they are in the file, so that, that when you, they actually get where they need to go, they can be reassembled back into the full file. Um, and so this allows you to just get like these bursts of packets from from the system, and then the system can go on to another connection and serve some other packets, and then it'll get around to then streaming the rest. Wait, but why is that faster? Like if I'm so, so you can see the this would create more data because you have to have a lot of information, you know, added to these packets so they know how to reassemble and all this sort of things on the other side or know how the system can reassemble them um, on the other side. And so, but this is faster because you don't have to have these sustained connections. So say to download that four gigabyte file, like say my internet is slow, as you know. So if I'm making that connection and then it takes, you know, whatever, three hours to download that file uh, Netflix, that connection on that system is not going to be able to be used by anyone else but me. And then so, I mean, obviously their servers, they have like, you know, probably thousands and thousands of servers and each one can take many connections at once, but there is a limit on each of them. So uh, you don't want to just tie up the tie, tie up the phone line. Think of it as tying up the phone line. Someone's picked up the phone and now no one else can use that phone line until that person hangs up. Uh, and so this kind of breaks it up. Uh, so instead, and, like the phone line's just doing like, Hang on, I, I don't understand this. We're sending the same amount of data. Like if I'm sending, more, you're technically actually sending more data because you're sending all that sort of yeah. uh, over overhead data as well. Right. So hang on, if I'm sitting here in my office in Prague and I've got a video yeah. and I'm like, I'm going to send this to David and let's say, yeah. you know, so I, uh, I have to do this the most analog way possible. I like print out a flick book of like yeah. 60 frames and then I send that to David and 60 more frames and I send that to David and 60 more frames and I send that to uh -huh. David and then I send him a big book of how everything in the right order goes and then you have to put it all yeah. together. Surely it's more efficient for me to just send, put everything in one big book and send that to you and it's all ready to go. It could be, but you also have to think of what if along the way, so I'm downloading, you're downloading or I'm downloading this file, right? But what if, what if that server suddenly stops working or whatever routing system stops working? You still want the system to work, right? You still want it to then route it around to other things. But if I, I have just lost and now I have to, if that happens, like if something stops, gets lost or whatever, that system, you know, like in a nuclear war or something, you want it to be able to then go to other routes to there and not have lost it. Like you don't have to just start again and re-download the whole thing. You can then get those packets from other things so they can take, these packets can also, I, I should it this maybe this will clear it up a little bit these packets can take different routes to the destination they don't all have to take the same route uh, so like they can just take whatever pick whatever seems the fastest at that given moment and they will take many different routes usually like you won't just get like a, a straight route and so they kind of go, go and go and they're all their different routes and then they all kind of co uh, you know coerce on the the system and then the system kind of puts them all back together all right let's see if we can make it stupid for simon uh in this example it would be like we've got a really terrible postal service and mm -hmm. I don't want to risk my giant delivery to you being screwed up by the terrible postal service. So instead what uh -huh. I do is I break it all down and I'm like, okay, this one's faster with DHL, this one's faster with FedEx, this one does really well with UPS. And then I send, you know, loads of them out to you through different routes. And then if I hear back uh -huh. from you being like, oh, I didn't get four from FedEx because uh -huh. they screwed it up at customs or whatever, then I yeah. can be like, hey, okay, I'm going to pack you this one up again and send it through DHL. And you have just described kind of the core of something we'll talk about later is the TCP, mm. TCP IP system. Exactly. Uh, Did I so, really? 
Yeah, I mean, this, we did not this, plan this. I'm quite pleased with myself. Yeah. <laughs> so there was various protocols at this point. Uh, the TCP/IP wasn't around yet, but they did have protocols for exactly this thing. Like, how do we know that the data got there? So let's you know ping back. But the kind of the idea here was one to distribute it so that these packets could go all over the place, like you just said, and also uh, to just you know not tie up connections on a, on a single system, so that you know there, there you do have a limited number of connections you can make. Um, at any given time. And so you want to just not tie it up by one user, you know, hogging the phone line, basically, um, if you want to think about it that way. So this is, this cool. is kind wow, of the guys who come up with this are real smart. Like, yeah. And, and a lot of these things actually are not that like the very core of the systems are quite easy to implement. Like they're not usually I mean, of course, over the years, they built up added complexity and stuff like this that has mm-hmm. kind of been layered on top. But the very heart of the system is actually not terribly complicated to code. Um, okay. All right, so now this gives us sort of the basic of how the, the communication happens on the ARPANET. And this this was set up initially. There was four nodes, and I, this is great. Uh, so it was the University of uh, California at Santa Barbara, the University of California, uh, Los Angeles, and the SRI at Stanford University, and the University of Utah. So they set this this sort of ARPANET up. These, these four systems are all connected on this, you know, future internet. Yeah. Uh, and so... On October 29th, 1969, at 10.30 p.m., randomly, so they clearly were working, you know, late hours as computer yeah. scientists do. Uh, so UCL, UCLA and the, the Stanford Research Institute, they're going to they're gonna do a communication, the first use of this ARPANET. And this, uh, Leonard Kleinrock gives the, the kind of funny story of this first momentous communique on the ARPANET. We set up a telephone connection between us and the guys at SRI. We typed the L and we asked on the phone, do you see the L? Yes, we see the L again, the response. We typed the O and we asked, do you see the O? Yes, we see the O. Then we typed the G and the system crashed. Yet a revolution had begun. I like that. (laughs) Naturally, of course it would crash. How many times did your audition crash before you started recording today's podcast? Ten times at least. Good times. (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, this... This is great. It just crashes. But I mean, can you imagine how excited they must have been? Like, it oh, worked. Yeah. Like, this is awesome. Uh, and then, you know, I assume they were trying to type in login, maybe. <laughs> L-O-G. Um, but anyways. <laughs> they, don't, they, don't, they don't elaborate. <laughs> no, they didn't. Uh, so by late, uh, so by late Wait, at this point, weren't they just like, yay, we've made the telegram electronic. <laughs> yeah, basically. The potential, they must know the potential. Yeah, the potential of what, what could happen connecting all these machines all over the world you know, to be able to communicate in one one system like this. Because, again, they did have these, these like point-to-point connections and things were a thing and stuff like that. But to have this have this sort of like universal system uh, that's with like packet switching system and everything was kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, so n- 1971, they had 23 computers at this point on the ARPANET. And this is when a guy named Rain, Ray Tomlinson, he decided to come up with a little uh, messaging system for the ARPANET. So... So at, at, at this point, uh, they, they had messaging systems on a single computer. So you, you would have, you know, sometimes thousands of people all using the same computer on different terminals and stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, so it kind of all connected to this, you know, central computer and you had terminals sometimes, uh, sometimes all in the same building, sometimes even, you know, far away from each other. And so this, they had this system called send message. And I mean, there was other programs similar to send message. Uh, that would just, and this one particularly ran on the 10x operating system. And so Tomlinson was like, why don't I make a send message that works on the network? So, so at this time, send message would just send a message on the same computer. So you could send a message to another user that was on the same computer. Wait, and again, so when they would log in, like when people used to check. Yeah. Yeah, or if they were already logged in, if on you know on a different terminal, it would just send it to them instantly. And there's tons of ah, wait, 
like a computer with multiple terminals. Yeah. Okay. So you, I mean, you could think of it as like having, you know, just different monitors and keyboards and mouse. Or, I mean, obviously they didn't have mice back then, but, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. As, yeah. We've, uh, as we mentioned in as last we week's just, episode. Uh, yeah. Go back so, and listen uh, to that. Yeah. Uh, so... So this is this is basically, and this I mean, this sounds absurdly useless, but there were literally systems at the time. Uh, for instance, the Otterdin uh, system in the 1960s had 30 million electronic messages per month using a, using programs like this Send Message. I mean, I don't think they were using Send Message. I, I don't know, but a program like that. Uh, so so his his particular Send Message ran on 10x, and he thought I'm going to make a thing that makes it so it doesn't just send it to a single computer. Like the, I can send it to anyone on the network, like any computer on the network, and it will just go there and then kind of work exactly like send message or all these single computer systems work at that point. So really the, the innovation was just adding that next step to be able to send it to another computer instead of having to be limited to the current computer. So it wasn't really terribly complicated to implement again. Yeah. All right. So, so this kind of idea, so Tomlinson says of his tweak to send message... Seemed like a neat idea. There was no directive to go forth and invent email. The ARPANET was a solution looking for a problem. A colleague, Jerry Birchfiel, suggested that I not tell my boss what I had done because email wasn't in our statement of work. That was really said in jest because we were, after all, investigating ways in which to use the ARPANET. <laughs> yeah, and so when, he's, when he was thinking about this, he was thinking, how do I designate what computer it should go to? And yeah. this... So for this, he had to look, you know, look around and try to find a symbol to to do it. And the at symbol actually was only on the keyboard because of its use in commerce. The at symbol was not something that people really used uh, other than commerce at this point. And so this is how it kind of got on the keyboard, of course, for, you know, accountants and things and uh, for receipts in which. Uh, so as to why he chose this, uh, Tomlinson actually talks about this as well. I looked at the keyboard and I thought, what can I choose here that won't be confused with the username? If every person has an at sign in their name, it wouldn't work too well. But they didn't. They did use commas and slashes and brackets. The purpose of the sign in English was to indicate a unit price. For example, 10 items at sign $1.95. So it made sense. At didn't appear in names, so there would be no ambiguity about where the separation between login name and host name occurred. At also had no significance in any editors that ran on 10x. I was later reminded that the Multics timesharing system used at as its line arrays character. This caused a fair amount of grief in that community of users. You know what's fun? Like, I I never knew this was used in commerce or anything like that. But now when mm -hmm. I'm like writing emails, I'll use that all yeah. the time in that fashion yeah. as shorthand. That's super popular now for that. But like at, at this point, uh, you know, like people didn't really use that other than, other than that, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but I did I did want to, did you notice that line there? The people on the Multic system, the at symbol was their line erase character. Yeah, what does that mean? Uh, it like, erases, erases the line, like, you know, so literally like, so you can think about this as like, what if the, you know, you're sending an email and maybe that's your delete button, basically. Ah, so if, if you're like, you've typed an, e you've typed an entire line and it's kind of like what that shift control backspace. So, so imagine, imagine you're using that multic system and now you're trying to send an email, you know, like Simon at, you know, Whistler, whatever. And so you, as soon as you hit that at button, it deletes the Simon. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, that would be kind of frustrating. <laughs> yeah. How did they solve this? They just I'm sure it? they just uh, there's ways around that sort of thing of taking a character as the character versus uh, taking it as a command. And you know, I don't I, I don't know how they solved it on the specific thing, but you know, there's right. there's like an easy this. way. There there's ways around that. Uh, so um, all right, so the so the kind of the format he ended up coming up with it then was that login name. 
So whatever their your username is at host. Uh, and then that was just kind of the computer of where, where it was. And then this later, once the DNS system got developed, then it was host.domain. So at first, you didn't even have to do that, like .com. It was just you know, log, you know, login name at host. It was all you needed and it would just, you know, route the route the message to the appropriate computer. Wait, can you give me an example of this? Like, what's a host? Would that be like Simon at Today I Found Out? Yeah, exactly. And then the or, domain or gmail.com. Yeah, or like, yeah, like Simon at gmail or whatever dot com would be. I the wish domain. I had that exactly. address. That'd be cool. Yeah. I remember when Gmail first came out. So I, I, it was like when it was invite only and everything. Yeah. And I totally could have gotten anything I wanted because there was almost no nobody on there. You could, I could have literally just gotten David at gmail.com. No problem. Wow. And I chose, I chose a different one, which I, I was, it's just stupid. It was like one that you would pick when, when there are millions Feral of people taken. using it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like David.hiskey49958. And this is what I went with. And I, I actually remember I was in a Java class, like learning a program and, you know, it was bored because it's boring. So you're just sitting there on your laptop. And uh, and this is where I got the little invite, and I was like, "Oh, cool! I'll just type this in. Awesome!" And that was dumb. I should, I could have picked anything. I I got an email from someone a while back, and their email address. Well, I won't say what it is, but let's say it was a, a three-letter first name, or like the short for a first name at mac.com. And I was oh. like, I, I was like, just completely off topic. But what's up with your email address? How did you get that? She was like, oh, yeah, I was one of the first people who was working at, at, at Apple or whatever. So I picked yeah. this up super early on. Like, and this was the thing. Really cool. Yeah, it's because when you're in the computer science, you know, at university, like the, these are the people who were getting the Gmail first. And so it's just like we're all sending invites around to each other. And it's like, I, and then you could have literally picked like Bob at gmail.com, which would just, although that one might not be good because people when they're putting in like fake email addresses. I was just going to say, you, sh you <laughs> should be glad you didn't. And I'm super glad I didn't have Simon at gmail.com because yeah. the number of times I've been like, we need your email address at like an airport yeah. Wi-Fi. I'd be like, yeah. yes, it's Simon at gmail.com. Yes, Simon yeah. at gmail.com. <laughs> Yeah, that's because I've totally used that bob at gmail.com one when right, they put an email address. Yeah, it just, every, every day you're getting like, welcome to Starbucks, welcome to Heathrow yeah. Airport. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so yeah, so then uh, speaking of, so uh, he implements the system and then he um, he sends the first, the first message was sent in late 1971. And of this momentous email, uh, Tomlinson describes it. The first message was sent between two Deck 10 machines that were literally side by side. The only physical connection they had, aside from the floor they sat on, was through the ARPANET. I sent a number of test messages to myself from one machine to the other. The test messages were entirely forgettable, and I have therefore forgotten them. <laughs> Most likely, the first message was God, QWERTY, and then, you know, the whole top line of the keyboard. I would, say, I would say, I would definitely pronounce that as yeah, QWERTY OOP. Really? Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. okay, QWERTY OOP. Yeah. Also, are you playing with me in this one or is that really how no, they that's pronounce how, that that's how i would say it i don't know if that's how other people say it <laughs> okay it's the first message is qwerty or something similar essentially quickly random quickly randomly typing gibberish on the keyboard when i was satisfied that the program seemed to work i sent a message to the rest of my group explaining how to send messages over the network the first use of network email announced its own existence there you go yeah. and this naturally became quite popular and then got uh, you know expanded upon you could everything. say that. You could yeah. say that. <laughs> yeah, it was one of the core, the core systems, and you know the SMTP protocol, which is kind of how all this kind of gets transferred. Emails get transferred around. Uh, is one of the core systems of the internet. So, yeah, the um, so yeah, so this. Uh, speaking of this, there was a variety of protocols here, you know, to be used at the time. So we had like 
X25 and uh, UUCP and these. Um, and so the ARPANET itself was uh, the, the main one in the beginning was the network control protocol, NCP. <laughs> and this this created a bit of a problem. They were like, how can we unite? So we have all these you know networks. How can we unite it all to one system to, to sort of a protocol to describe how, how stuff should get, all these packets and stuff could get transferred around instead of everyone using their own little custom thing. So this mm-hmm. brought in uh, Vint Cerf and Bob, Bob Kahn. Uh, mm-hmm. They're kind of known as the fathers of the internet. In 1974, they came up with, uh, well, they, with the help of others, came up with the TCP, the Transmission Control Protocol, and uh, and then uh, kind of got expanded out because they were they were too specific. Like the TCP was trying to do too much, and so there we need to break this up uh, into sort of different systems, the kind of layered systems. And so then it gave, by 1978 it was uh, called the TCP/IP, and so the IP is just uh, stands for Internet Protocol, and the TCP is just the Transmission Control Protocol. And this, in a very very high level. It's just the TCP is responsible for, it's sort of this protocol when you're writing. So these these protocols get implemented into software, um, but they kind of give the outline, kind of the guidelines for how this system should interact um, type of thing. So yeah, like the, okay. the, you know, like the protocol, like if I walk up to you, like the human protocol, of I put out my hand and say, nice to meet you and you shake hands, you know, like this is like a protocol. Um, yeah. And so this is kind of the same thing. And, and it, there's literally like handshaking that goes on, like digital handshaking. Uh, so it's just the same thing as to say how these, how, when you get a packet from somewhere, how do you deal with it? What format is the, is the data and where does it tell what page number you might think of it that way? Like what, okay. what page number this packet is. And so where all this is in this, this, you know, packet of data, how do I know which bits are what? And so it's how it's divided up. And how do I know if the packet even came and all the bits are the way they were when they sent it, you know, so you actually have to have that little bit. You have like, it's called a checksum. Uh, that basically is just doing a bit of math to determine like, yes, these bits are all in the same state they were when they sent it. And so, and if they're not, then we throw away that packet and we request it again. Um, so it's so basically this, kind of like rules for data behavior, essentially. Yeah, and essentially. Then yeah, making and sure you do it. Exactly. And so then the TCP and then it'll, the TCP, because it is something that it wants to make sure that you got the packet. So like there are some, like there is one called the UDP and this one doesn't care if you got the packet or not, like it's a, just a one way, we'll send it to you if you got it, if you didn't, who cares? So when you're like streaming a movie, this is often the case. They don't care if you didn't get it usually, or at least that's how a lot of the systems work. Uh, similar gaming and stuff. They don't care if you got it because you've moved on in time, you know, in the game or whatever. And so you just want to just to keep working. So you don't want to have that extra overhead of just continually having to request. Yes, I got the packet. Okay. Send more or whatever you don't want. You don't need that because it's, you know, like so they'd if, rather just like drop a frame or something. Exactly. Whereas if you're, you know, downloading a Word document or something, you, you want to make sure. Sentence. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You want to make sure it's exactly what. And so the TCP is just doing this. Is it's just a protocol to make sure the packets got, you know, got there. Okay, I got the packet, and it's all the data is in the in the way I need it, and I know how to translate this. So this is, I mean, it's That's like a very super high interesting. level. Yeah. It's like, hey, like if you're consuming something in real time, it's like, well, well we screwed up. We better just move on immediately. <laughs> yeah, because now. Yeah. Yeah. And you might think like a phone conversation, right? Like, so if it drops that packet, you don't want that word that they said like three seconds ago to suddenly just appear, you know, like, oh, because you've moved on in the conversation. So it just, it ends up being just like this little blip in the audio or something, you know, that might happen. 
Um, and most of the time, these systems are pretty reliable. So like, so you'll get most of the packets. So particularly when you're streaming a movie or something, you're not going to notice if you dropped a frame, you know, yeah, sure. it's, unless it like dropped a lot of frames or something. But that, you know, these systems are pretty reliable. So so they just use the UDP, but the TD, TCP uh, is kind of the main one that's used for most data transmission. Because when you are requesting a web page, you want to make sure all that data, like you said, you're not missing a sentence or anything like that. So, so this brings us also then, okay, so the TCP is, is looking at that kind of the data and making sure you got it and doing the handshakes back and forth to make sure everything worked. But then the IP is actually the part of the protocol that then, how does it, how does it know where to go? You know, so the IP, you can think of it almost like a, a, an address and then like a system to make sure it's routed correctly to where it needs to go, uh, essentially. And so um, it's the, it's the mailman version of it, I should say. And this is what these two guys came up with. Yeah, essentially. I mean, obviously other people involved, but this was kind of the, the core was the Vint Cerf and Bob Kahn. And this this is yeah, basically how originally it was just the TCP and they were kind of wrapping it all into one big thing. And then later, later it was decided, like, we're trying to do too much with this protocol. It's getting too complicated. We need to make it simple so that later you could adjust. Like if you wanted to adjust something slightly on the IP protocol, you know, you don't want to have to change the entire TCP protocol. So they would make it layers. So you have these different systems all kind of layered on top of each other so we could change one little piece of it without having to rework the entire thing. Um, so. Why are these guys the fathers of the internet? It feels like the guys who were doing the messages back and forth and stuff, they were more like really inventing this and these guys just came up with a way to make it more reliable. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of the core of the of the internet, how the, the TCP system is. is so, that, so you didn't have all these different protocols, so you had now this one unified thing. Okay, so they kind of brought it all together. Yeah, I mean, basically, I mean, again, you know, whenever people say like the fathers of this or yeah, that, it's... there was always so many more people involved in everything. Um, but, you know, you, you got your your people who came up with uh, some of the core ideas. Yeah. Um, now like, very right, excited about where Al Gore is going to fit into this whole thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like you got like Ray Tomlinson, right? Like he didn't what the modification he made to that send message system, I mean, was fairly minor. All he did was make it so that the system that already existed now would send to another computer. Like this is kind of an add on code, but you know, he's the father of email because he made that, that leap. Okay. Made the sim I, simple leap. It wasn't even that complicated to, to make that leap. Like any, lots of people could have done it. He just happened to be the one who did it. I gotcha. Cool. Credit yeah. where it's due. Fathers of the internet yeah. and some other yeah. dudes. Yeah. And lots of, lots of other lots people. Lots of other dudes. Yeah. Yeah, so these these protocols, basically the nice thing about why this is great, because now, so you have these TCP IP protocols and some other protocols, and so someone will write the software for how these, you know, the actual software that does the thing, but now when you're writing an application on top of that, you don't have to worry about, you know, do I, is the packet, you know, going there? Is it getting where it needs to go? Doesn't matter, the TCP IP protocol will make sure that it is. And so you okay. as an application developer don't have to worry about that anymore. You can just be like, I know, I'll use this function that, you know, has all this underlying code that I don't even know. I've, I haven't even looked at it. Uh, but I know that that's what it's going to do. It's going to guarantee that this gets there. And if it doesn't, maybe it throws an error or something and I can I can check for that if I want. But um, but yeah, this it's just kind of this layered system where everything gets easier for the people writing the software on, on the next layer, level up, which allows you to make a lot more advanced software quite quickly and easily, which is kind of the whole the whole thing with computer science and everything. So now we have a problem though. So at this point, we're now in 1983. And so this is this is quite a system that's it's growing and growing. And so you have all these things. 
uh, all these systems on it. And but like, how do you keep track of where everything is? So now today we have the domain name system, but they didn't have the domain name system at this time. They had some sort of a hack version of this. Dude, what's a was... domain name system? Is that like where we have like something.com? Exactly. So uh, so the domain name system is this system where you have, think of it as like a phone book. It, it literally is just like a phone book of the internet. So instead of type, you know, so when you want to dial a person's phone number, nowadays anyway, you will go on your phone and you'll click the contact that you've created, right? And so they have a name, you know, I'll, yeah. click, I'll click Simon and then it, the, the phone knows your phone number. I don't know your phone number. You know, it's just there and I'll just click your name and then the phone just knows the number because it's associated. I've put it in there at some point. And so this is all the domain name system is. It's taking the name like todayifoundout.com and, and just translating it. So, okay, you put the user puts in todayifoundout.com. What the computer then looks up is what's the actual address Right. Where is this? Where is this website actually located? And it turns out it's one one zero four point two four point one five one point one zero four. That is the you know phone number you can think of it for todayifoundout.com. Um, and literally, if you put that in HTTPS uh, forward slash forward slash put that in and then a forward slash. I'm doing DN, it right now. Doing Today right I found now. out should come up. Um, either that or my CDN will do something weird, perhaps. But I got something called an error one one zero one zero zero three. Yeah. Wait, did I put? It should it should come up. No, it should come up. Even the CDN shouldn't be messing with. I don't know what a CDN is. Hey, did you say HTTPS? Uh, HTTP. Don't put the S, which okay. is something I need to fix at some point because that's a HTTP colon double forward slash. Oh, you might have to put uh, you might have to put colon eighty just to make sure it knows it's the again. We're no, that is my CDN just doing something weird. Oh, direct IP access not allowed. Error one zero zero three. So that is my CDN doing being like, nope, I'm not going to let you do that. Uh, uh, okay, so because so you have to, so it must be a security issue or something. They must. I didn't. I didn't know they did that usually. Uh, but but if I if you bypass the CDN and actually went to the real IP address of the server, and that is probably a security thing, so that you can't uh, maybe find the real IP address. But no, that that would be in the the DNS information. So. I don't know why they do that. I'm sure it's security at some level. But anyways, normally, if you didn't have this CDN blocking it, you would just, the website would come up. And so it is, it would be like dialing the phone number in your phone, like directly, like if I literally had your phone number memorized and dialed it instead of just clicking the Simon. Um, yeah. this, It'd be like, this, hi, you've got an error 1003. <laughs> yeah. So, and so this is all it is. It's a, the DNS system is just a phone book. So, and it's a decentralized, critically, it's a decentralized phone book system. So you don't have one system somewhere that knows everybody's address, right? You have many systems and you have many registrars. So like you'll have like a GoDaddy, which has their own, you know, thing. And you have, there's many, many out there yeah. that like probably, I don't know if millions, probably not millions, but definitely many, many thousands uh, yeah. of these things. And so then these sort of so these central domain name, you know, things, they keep a very large address of things. And then below that you have like these routers. So even your computer keeps track of DNS information. So once you access a website, or whatever service uh, it will it, using the that uses the DNS system. Uh, your computer will store that for a certain amount of time, and your home router will store that for a certain amount of time, so that it remembers next time what the what the phone number is basically for this, and uh -huh. so it doesn't have to look it up. Because because at first when you type todayifoundout.com, if you've never gone to todayifoundout.com, your computer doesn't know what it where it is. So it, your computer says, "Hey, my router." where's where's today i found out.com and then your router's like i don't know we've never been to today i found out.com <laughs> so then it asks the, the next level up which is your internet providers uh dns stuff uh, like, what's up thing. dude Tell it, me is, it is and it says do you know where today i found out.com is and it says it might say yes because there you know there's thousands and thousands of people using that 
you know, your internet providers, you know, those routers that they're using. But if it doesn't know, uh, so it might say yes, if it's got it in its little memory and it might say, okay, yeah, sure. Here's the, here's the thing. It's 104.24.151.104. And so yeah. it's like, awesome. Thanks. Got it. Now I can use the IP protocol to then, you know, have route packets around. But if it doesn't, then it will go up to its next level router. And this process will continue until somebody has the address and and it'll go all the way to the top to potentially like, you know, whatever the DNS registrar that you actually registered the domain with in the first place. So whatever company mm-hmm. you did and that one, it'll eventually okay, finally per, yeah percolate up to that. And then they'll be like, yes, I know where this is. Here's the address. And so this and then that'll filter all the way down. And then all those routers through that chain will then for a time remember this address. And so you don't have to always go all the way to the top, you know, and it's actually, you usually don't have to go all the way to the top. It's pretty rare, especially for like a popular website like that. Like if you type youtube.com particularly, I mean like every router in your computer probably stores that all the time. Um, so that it did. So, and that's good because you have this latency issue. So that actually does take like a split second and you will notice, like if you were having to do that every time you would notice, but if your computer or your home router already has that information stored, it happens just like, you know, much quicker. Um, so this, you know, get rid of the latency. So it's this distributed system like this. So you don't really need a center. You don't have like a central system. But before they had the DNS system, they literally had one file called host.txt that Stanford Research Institute maintained. And Wait, anytime so like a regular text file. Yeah, totally. I mean, that is essentially all these these files, like the the address, it is just a text file um, that's residing somewhere, a little text file, but they had one central tech host.txt that then yeah. had to be parsed. Like, so you can see what, what these systems would do then is the local system administrators would then just go, you know, download this file because you wouldn't want to download the entire file that has the address of every system on the internet. No, this whole massive file. And then parse through that file. And then do this. And then, of course, if they want to make a change or, or what if that system goes down, you know, then, you, you you know, these system administrators would maintain their own local copies, but they had to keep requesting it. You know, so they could request it and then your local system, but you still have to parse through that file. This is a nightmare when you're talking about, you know, thousands and thousands or potentially millions eventually of, uh, of systems on this system. And so that's just not it's not scalable. It didn't work well. And so this is what uh, this is what the uh, Paul Makapetris Mm-hmm. came up with the dns system to sort of get around this just to, again had to be distributed in case you know nuclear war or whatever and plus it's just a good idea to be distributed anyway um so you didn't have any central system and it was just kind of this nice nice chain of things and it works it works quite well um and so this this kind of solved that problem it's a and this, solution yeah it totally is and also very simple and like it's not yeah. actually that complicated all these things are very the very core of how the internet works is all quite simple um the- well, it is and it isn't. Like, I look at this and it's, it seems like the idea is, in a way, is it, is it simple? Because it's like, okay, so we ask the local browser and then we ask the one above it, then we ask the one above it. In a way, it seems complex. It's, it's elegant, but it, I don't know. If but it... you see, each stage of the thing is just a simple bit of code that's doing the same thing. So the entire system as a whole is very complex, but these little core elements and parts stuff... Of it. Yeah. are actually not complex at all. They're just kind of elegant solutions to a problem. I know we're talking a lot about the history of the internet today, but I feel I'm just learning a lot about, like, you kind of use it and you're like, yeah, I go to Gmail and I do my stuff. Yeah. And then I go to like YouTube and I do my stuff. I had no idea about a lot of this stuff. 
Yeah, no, this, I, uh, my networking class, my first, my first one, I picked many, but uh, the first one was, I, I was like, I love that. I, I literally was one of the few times where I got the textbook and I read it like you would read like a normal book. It was like, well, yeah. that's interesting. You know, it's like, it's like, it's just a real page turner. <laughs> Rather than every other textbook, it's like, oh God, okay. Yeah. 400 was, pages at like $80. <laughs> it was totally fascinating. And it was also fascinating just how simple everything was. I mean, these assignments that, that we were given in this, this first class, like probably 200 level or something, not even that complicated, were literally, okay, make a web server. And it's just like, no, I can't make a web server. That's got to be really complicated. No, it's not very complicated at all, actually, to make a basic... And it's like, make make a this system that does this. And it turns out all these things, not that complicated to code. Like uh, at their very core, obviously things get built on top of things. And then, yeah. you know, the, it eventually is quite complicated when you look at the whole system. But, you know, at the very core. Uh, so this we're getting we're going to go over to to Britain now, actually. Um, Tim Berners-Lee, <laughs> the inventor of the World Wide Web, 1989. Uh, so. This, he was working at the time for CERN, which is the European Organization for Nuclear Research. And I was wondering, why is it CERN? You know, European, this is somehow the uh, it's in acronym France, right? for this. Yes, exactly. And I, I didn't know this. So it turns out it comes from the French name. Do you want to give a go at, at that one? Conseil European pour la recherche nucléaire. Yeah, is that, or CERN. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, and I guess that's maybe better than EONER. You know, CERN sounds a little better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they've come up with something more catchy. The yeah. like, I can't come up with anything off on the spot of things, but I'm sure they'd come up with something catchy, especially yeah. if the Americans had something to do with it. Like you, you could cons- your your government could literally consult on giving things like the Patriot Act. I had no idea that that actually <laughs> stood for something for the longest time. I said it's got to be about being patriotic. It's like nope, they made it fit. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Well, this speaking of names, I loved Tim Berners-Lee, right? So he had other names for the World Wide Web he was originally, you know, considering. And so my favorite one is the the information mine, which would be uh, Tim. Ah, T-I-M, the information mine. Ah. Yeah. And I, that would have been, a, I like that better Immortalized than Immortalized Tim, that, yeah. You know, just like, you've been on, <laughs> actually, that sounds completely wrong. Have you been on Tim today? <laughs> <laughs> but no, so he had that. He also had the mine of information, which is the Moy. And the information mesh, which he abandoned because it sounded like information mess, which is kind of confitting, actually. True. Um, yeah, but I like true. my my favorite of those was the Tim. It'd just be funny if the I whole like yeah. this global system is, you know, or this you know, World Wide Web is called the Tim. It feels uh, like but, something from a science fiction novel. But, so he actually he actually originally suggested something like the web, uh, uh, web all the way back in 1980. And again, this is just a system for serving files at its very core. That's all it's really doing. And then on the other end of that, you have a browser, which then interprets the data in the files to do something, you know, like, so you have the, you know, it interprets the, all the text. It is just text coming in to how, or, or, you know, it could be, a, you know, an image URL, which then streams the image. And then the browser decides how to display the image or, you know, how to display the tech, you know, the text or the formatting and all this based on tags and things. And so that is at its core. All the web is really is, uh, you know, file serving. And so he had this idea in 1980 for how to do this. Uh, and nobody, nobody bid on that idea at that point. And so then in um, 1989, he proposed it again. And it's still nothing, nothing too much. And then finally, in um, 1990, it was when um, things really started to pick up. And then he in he sort of just started developing this system. Uh, so he, he needed a system for, you know, he wanted the system to use hypertext so that you could click on a link and then it would take you to a document potentially on a completely different server. This was going to be the core of the thing to how to navigate around, which is quite 
this wasn't like there were these these other type of systems like they had um there i can't remember the name of it now i feel like there was an x in it or something uh, there was one that had like a two-way hyperlink system so that when you clicked on a link, it would actually, there was a possibility of the, of the, of sort of an interaction going on. But this system, this system was a little bit more complicated and I can't, what was that? There was a system somebody developed, started with an X, can't remember. Anyway, so this had the one way where it would just, you know, you click on the link and it connects you to, you know, a document potentially on the same server, potentially somewhere else. So this is kind of what he was looking at. Yeah. Um, he, he also interestingly wanted everything to be editable. It was basically Wikipedia was the original, you know, idea. So everybody could edit the data on oh, there. Every web page? Every web page could be edited. Risky. Risky, yeah, it does. Uh, obviously, it would need, you know, like Wikipedia, like, you know, monitoring systems. And then, of course, you know. You wouldn't want people to edit a lot of the stuff you put. So that obviously that part didn't didn't really stick around, but that was one of the original ideas. So then, yeah, and then he had to to, to make all this work. To, so how does it display, right? So how do you know where to put the text and, you know, what order and format and things? And that's where he came up with the hypertext markup language, HTML, uh, mm -hmm. which was just these tags, basically very simple, just these tags that would, you know, parse through to know how to format the data that's coming through and put it up in the browser. Uh, he also developed a browser. Uh, and then, you know, so he also did the um, hypertext transfer protocol, which is just kind of how to, you know, transfer this stuff around. And this uh, kind of funny. So, you know, we were talking about, so you put HTTP or HTTPS and uh, yeah. that's, that's kind of the, you know, and then you put these colon and then you put two forward slashes, right? Like this is the format of URLs, but it turns out these two forward slashes are not necessary at all. He just thought they were at the time. Uh, so oh. he actually, has, he actually has a quote. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? The other stuff is necessary because it's like you're telling the computer to do something. The two forward yeah. slashes is just there for fun. Yeah, it basically he wanted he wanted a way, he thought he needed a way to separate that sort of like so you have the brainfood or todayifoundout.com or pretty soon brainfood.fm. Uh, and so he to separate that from sort of what the what the, the the protocol was being used underlying, you know, the HTTP. But mm -hmm. it turns out uh, upon retrospect, uh, the, the forward slashes were, were not necessarily all. You could just get rid of them if it wasn't just part of the way it's done, you know? Uh, so all right. <laughs> this, this was that. And, and the, as far as the forward slashes, you chose those just because like if you're used to a Unix-based system, you, so you have the, forward, the single forward slash as the root. Um, and so this was just kind of his idea. I'll just do two forward slashes there. And, kind of <laughs> now, and now he's the only reason anyone ever uses a forward slash. <laughs> yeah, on this <laughs> end. Yeah, and so uh, and then also the the number sign or hashtag if people prefer that. Also, he came up or just because he was or octothorpe. Uh, octothorpe. As I found yeah. out from a today I found out article. Yeah, also known as the octothorpe. Yeah, so that he was just thinking of like so when you put in an address of like an apartment, right? And so you might put a suite number. You know, you traditionally in a lot of addresses you put the number sign and then the suite number. Uh -huh. So it's like a street name, and so that's basically all he was thinking about there. So if you have a page URL and then you put that that number sign, and then you'll you know, you might you know, say some text or something after that. And it just tells you the location on the page. So there's kind of a bunch of interesting things on like how he uh -huh. thought up what symbols to use and stuff. So this is why like when you browse a Wikipedia page and you click to like, I don't mm -hmm. know, whoever, and then you click on early life. And then at the top, it will do like um, yeah. Napoleon hashtag early life. And if yeah. you go to that link, it'll automatically skip down. Ah, yeah, this is just kind of his Today idea. I found out. Yeah. And so I just thought those, particularly the forward slash ones, I thought was interesting just because it's completely unnecessary. We could just get rid of it and you could just have the HTTP colon 
and then can you do that or do you now have to enter them because he made it a thing i'm pretty sure you can't do that because that is just i'm gonna try it right now but i I don't think i've ever tried that before oh no that totally works wow yeah i don't know if that's firefox or the browser actually translating and just doing it or or if it's actually like it doesn't matter it didn't work oh no it did work for me i just typed in today i found.com which if you're interested is for sale (laughs) (laughs) so the uh that might that might just be the browser because obviously you can ignore the HTTP part completely and the browser yeah. just kind of assumes that's what you're wanting uh, and so unless you specify something different. So again, it might just be the browser just being smart rather than, you know, just uh, being built into the, the way things are done. But um, uh, I don't think the browser is being smart because I typed in blah colon today I found out dot com. Didn't uh, work. Didn't work. Okay. <laughs> uh, so on uh, August 6, 1991, he published the world's first web page on the web server that he made. And unfortunately, we don't know uh, that he didn't save it because it didn't really seem momentous at the time. You know, oh. like it was just one of many systems that were using, you know, built on for serving files and stuff on the Internet because there were others around. Uh, we'll mention a couple of them briefly here coming up. But um, there were other systems. And so the, he didn't really, you know, this one literally he knows what was on it. It was basically just. A, a thing that described, you know, how the system worked. It kind of talked about the H, you know, his basically just described the system, how to set up a server for it, a web server. And, you know, kind of, it was just kind of an instructional document. And that, that, that is the first web page, but no one, he didn't bother saving it. And it got changed as things changed with the system and the way it works. So, I mean, it was quite some time before anyone was like, hey, maybe we should actually, you know, screenshot this or something. <laughs> it's like historic. Um, so this, this uh, again, at this point, there wasn't super popular. So we we're talking 1991 here, and then we move on to 1993. And it's still the web wasn't super popular until a little browser called Mosaic came along, uh, developed by Mark uh, Anderson, Andreessen. And yeah. uh, so this is where Al Gore comes in. Okay. There, there was a Mark Anderson. He got the, the, the money he needed, the grant to make this thing came or the team that he was involved in to make this thing uh, came from the High Performance Computing and Communication Act of 1991, which was also known as the Gore Bill. And this this uh-huh. is this is what Al Gore was talking about or one of the things he was talking about, because he actually did sponsor a lot of uh, bills to get funding for a lot of technology things. And this was kind of his thing. This was his claim to fame for most of his career up until he became vice president. Um, this is what he did. Like this, this was his thing. He was known as an Atari Democrat and it was kind of derogatory in some, some circles. Uh, cause it's like, uh, you know, pushing all these newfangled technologies and wasting money on all this technology that we don't need and this sort of thing. Uh, and so, th- but this is, this is, this particular bill seems to be the one he was talking about in that Wolf Blitzer interview that everyone says he said he invented the internet. Um, and we actually have the actual quote of what he said here. He said, During my service in the United States Congress, I took the initiative in creating the internet. I took the initiative in moving forward a whole range of initiatives that have proven to be important to our country's economic growth and environmental protection, improvements in our educational system. Okay. You can see from that quote, there's one part. Yeah, taken out of context. There's, there, yeah, if you take it in context, you can see what he's saying. But there is that one part that's worded very poorly. But of course, you know, it's a live interview. So, yeah. I feel like uh, politicians in general, you know, they're constantly getting asked questions. You can cut them a little slack, you know, like they're not yeah. always going to word things. Cra- and we'll get into we'll get into another one uh, uh, on the other side of the Sarah, the famous Sarah Palin one. We'll mention that briefly. Uh, oh, but this one, Russia one. I like. Yeah. This one. Yeah. So so this one, this one, obviously, that one part, I took the initiative in creating the Internet. So there's two problems with that one. 
I took the initiative. So people, you know, common speech initiative, that's not, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the political, the actual initiative, like the yeah. political term of that. And, but you know, most people wouldn't interpret it that way. Um, would that be like then, a noun because it's a specific project and then the verb would be like what in common usage i'm terrible with this stuff i'm just thinking yeah, if yeah, that's like because you mean exactly like an initiative so. a thing yeah he's talking about like a, a actual thing the initiative that ended up you know and he's talking about this bill um and then in creating the internet and so that sounds like when those two things combined sounds like he is saying he's created the internet but of course that's not at all what he was saying uh, he yeah. was just saying he sponsored this bill, like he pushed for it, that got the that got the thing. And he's also making the other mistake here, like we just talked about, of equating the World Wide Web to the Internet and saying they're the same thing. And that's not... He did actually provide... Uh, uh, he did a lot of, you know, try to get funding and stuff for a lot of Internet projects. It wasn't... So there was, you know, a wider thing than just the World Wide Web. But this one, he was... he You know, he meant creating the World Wide Web. You know, like this is... Uh, and, 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 and then not... I should go back, not creating the World Wide Web, but actually the browser that made the World Wide Web as we think of it today. Like if it hadn't been for this browser, this mosaic, uh, the World Wide Web wasn't. There was other services more popular at the time. And so you might have something different at this point. Um, but then, you know, the mosaic came along. And so this this is basically the thing. Uh, and there's... It feels a bit tough that he's like had this yeah. ongoing meme. for when was this? Yeah. Like 1991? Yeah. No, this was no, later. No, this... No, this was this was later when he was. Uh, I can't remember if this was when he did this interview. I didn't put but the it. But it was down. a long. This was time much. Ago. This was when the. Him. Yeah, this was when the World Wide Web was huge, and this is what he was saying. And so he was, you know, he made a few that that one sentence is there's a few mistakes in it, like or two of them are kind of like that's eh, kind of mistake. The internet one was a complete mistake. He should have said the World Wide Web and yeah. also the browser that made it popular. But of course. You know, that's a, that's a mouthful compared to, you know, but anyway, so yeah. He would have avoided a lot of grief if he had uh, said for himself, differently. Yeah. Or if, or if Wolf Blitzer had followed up with, so you invented the internet. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, but at that point, it, it probably wouldn't have mattered because, you know, they had the, the, the opponents uh, had, yeah. the, had the soundbite they needed. Um, so yeah, but Vincent Cerf, again, the aforementioned one of the fathers of the internet, he had this to say about the whole uh, controversy there. The internet would not be where it is in the United States without the strong support given to it and related research areas by Al Gore in his current role and in his earlier role as senator. As far back as the 1970s, Congressman Gore promoted the idea of high-speed telecommunications as an engine for both economic growth and the improvement of our educational system. He was the first elected official to grasp the potential of computer communications to have a broader impact than just improving the conduct of science and scholarship. His initiatives led directly to the commercialization of the internet. So he really does deserve credit. Yeah, this and this was the the internet information superhighway was another one of Gore's like uh, little sound bites that he did where it was just like he was talking about like, you know, so you have the interstates that really uh, you know, boosted the economy because you had people traveling far distances and, you know, it's good for businesses along the mm -hmm. way and all this sort of thing. And so this was kind of his like shtick for a while. There was like the internet could be that like commercialized. And this this was actually a bit of a leap back then because there wasn't, I mean, there was actually rules against commercializing things on the internet at the time. Um, so it was it was a bit of a leap and, not, and, and quite, quite, quite interesting. But yeah, that's how, that sort of thing, that was his, his thing. And that's how he got the sort of the nickname Atari Democrat. Um, you know, based on the <laughs> commercializing things on the internet, that sure changed. And thanks to Audible for sponsoring this <laughs> yeah. episode of the podcast. <laughs> exactly. And so this, this, uh, I, I wanted to go on the other side because this is just drives me crazy a little bit. So I think we could make like a really good channel just going and just what, what were, what did the politician actually say and what did they actually mean? You know, because what they actually mean is important. 
uh, as well. And so, you know, just like a political channel, but one that's like completely unbiased and just like, all right, no, this is what they said, but this is what they were trying to say. And then oh, you know, on bo- both sides. We could, we could call it misquote, two words, like M-I-S-S quote. <laughs> yeah. We're going to mention the Sarah Palin one just because I thought it was interesting. So everyone thinks she said, uh, I can see Russia from my house. She did not say, I can see Russia from my house. Uh, this this was uh, Tina Fey who said that, <laughs> playing her in playing, a Saturday Night yeah. Live. Yeah. <laughs> yes, what she actually said. Uh, so she was asked. I got the quote here. What the reporter said was, what insight into Russian actions, particularly during the last couple of weeks, does the proximity of this state give you? And she responds, there are next door neighbors, and you can actually see Russia from land here in Alaska from an island in Alaska. Yeah. I'm assuming she doesn't live on said island. <laughs> no, no. And this no. is the funny thing, because she's doing something here that all politicians, all celebrities, all pretty much any celebrity of any type, sports, whatever, famous people do this all the time, is where they seems like they're answering the question, but they didn't actually answer the question at all. This well, you just... point this out, like I'm looking at the notes and when I was reading this through before we did this today, I was just like, yeah, OK, fine. You know, moving on. Yeah. And then you look back and it's like, no, wait, should we read the question again and then read the answer again? Because it is like, it is not an answer in any way. It does, it's just a statement. Every like political debate, go watch and then actually really think about what the question was and what the politician said. Almost never. It is extremely rare that they ever actually answer the question. They'll always say something that kind of vaguely sounds like they do, but they don't almost ever because, you know, they don't want to be, you don't want to take a hard stance usually on a lot of things because then, you know, people take quotes, you know, like a single quote. You got to be really careful what you say, as Al Gore demonstrated and as, as Sarah Palin demonstrated here as well. This uh, would also be an amazing thing for our misquote channel because yeah. how about this? You just distill it down to what they actually said. So this is it. The reporter asks, what do you know about Russians and yeah. what they're up to because you're close to them? She responds, I can see Russia. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, like, what? So this, this is why. And, and in truth, it is absolutely true. There is an Alaskan island. It's not a lie. Uh, yeah. A little, little Diomede. I don't know really how you pronounce that. That You can see Russia from that island and it is an Alaskan island. But, uh, so, Great, so but she what, said, what have you learned about Russian, yeah. Russian actions? She, nothing. nothing she said was inac- inaccurate at all. But um, but anyways, this, of course, has caused her much grief because of the Tina Fey version of, of that, which it was. I mean, it was a, it was an answer that, you know, didn't answer. So it's kind of funny. But they all do. All politicians do that. I don't I don't think we we single out like one politician here. Anyway, it's wow. back to Mosaic, back to the topic at hand. Uh, so it's often said that Mosaic was the first web browser, which obviously isn't true because, you know, see Russia. <laughs> It's not an answer, Sarah. (laughs) No, it's it's really not. Oh, man. Sorry. Carry on. No, seriously, go watch any like presidential debate or anything like where they do that. They never answer the questions ever. It's it's amazing. Um, But it always seems like they do. It always feels like it. Like, yeah. Do you think this is something that they get trained in? Like their PR people totally. must be like, no, absolutely. You because you have to be, as a politician, I mean, you have to be so, you say one little sentence, like Al Gore illustrated there, one little sentence wrong, and that is going to live with you, you know, like, and people just take it as like, even if you, you even if you were just clearly misspoke, you, you know, misspoke for a second, which everyone does. But for some reason in politics, people are like, oh, no, that's what that person believes. And that's, you know, no, we're going to condemn them forever for it. And it happens on both sides of, or on any side of the political spectrum. But this would be a wonderful documentary subject to go and do a documentary, go follow one of these people who like the PR people yeah. 
and talk about how they do it and then break down like politicians doing it. Because yeah. not only is that super fascinating, it's ultra useful next time an election comes around because you can be like, yeah, well, she did talk, but she does seem to know about Russian actions. And they're like, yeah. no, she doesn't. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, this is, yeah, that's a great skill just to have as well. You know, just to... Oh, yeah. Do you want to go do some PR training? We'll learn all about not answering questions. <laughs> that would be, an, it would be, it would be fascinating because I mean, they probably give like master classes on these types of things. Um, wow. Just sounding God, like you're saying a, something. We'd be a PR nightmare with this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, that, that's the great thing. Podcasts, you get, you get away with a lot more saying things than I feel like in other mediums, like even on YouTube. Unless you're you... Elon Musk, apparently. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unless you're like ultra, ultra famous. But like pod, like YouTube, even you get you can get in a lot more trouble uh, if you say just one thing off. But in the podcast, people, I don't know, I think maybe because people know you're just sitting down having a chat. So people are a little more forgiving about like, oh, wait, you know, he said that wrong or whatever. It's like, eh, yeah, whatever. He's just having a chat. Of course. It's more like yeah. having a conversation with a friend, which, you know, everybody says stuff wrong sometimes, whereas, you know. So Mosaic, a lot of people say it was the first web browser because it was what most people were first exposed to the web on. But of course, uh, Tim Berners-Lee, he had to have his own web browser in the first place uh, to to make the whole thing work. So there was actually quite a lot of web browsers. Is Mosaic around. the name of the browser? It was the name of the browser. And, and you might better know it because a lot of the people who worked at Mosaic or who helped develop it actually went on to develop Netscape, which was kind of the next huge, huge one that uh, kind of took everyone by storm. What would you call something when you get all those tiles together and put them on a floor? Would you also call that a mosaic? Um, isn't that like an art version of that, right? Well, yeah, I'm just wondering if it's like, is because I would call it like a, mo a mosaic, not a mosaic. But I yeah. wonder if that's just a pronunciation difference. Mo oh, okay. Yeah, so that is what I'm talking about. So that must be a pronunciation difference. That's interesting. So I was like, what's with the extra syllable in there? Mosaic. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play this right now. Oh, the, uh, well, the English... Probably American version on Google has it the way I said it. But what does yours do? The the British version. I, know, I, feel it, I feel it's short of it. Now I'm now I'm doubting myself. Yeah. Nope. I just don't know how to say mosaic. <laughs> <laughs> All right then. Uh, I was so, always calling it like mosaic, not mosaic. But yeah. Okay. So this this, uh, this was this was the browser that sort of so so. If we actually go back to Tim Berners Lee's original browser, it was amazing. It had a graphical user interface. It had uh, multiple fonts, font sizes. You can download and display images, sounds. It did sounds, animations, movies. It streamed all this. It handled it all quite nicely Whoa. in this one thing. The problem was this was very complex. And of course, you had all these different systems back then. You did, uh, and so his this complex one ran on the Next, Next Steps OS operating system, which that was kind of the predecessor for um, what would become... Uh, the Apple's main operating system, but at the time Apple was doing something completely different because they had gotten rid of Steve Jobs, and uh, and so this was this was Steve Jobs's thing. But the next, as you might imagine, being Steve Jobs's thing, was really expensive, uh, and so almost nobody nobody owned this system. Um, so so this wasn't very useful to develop this this web browser because it didn't work on anyone else's system, and no one had Next, so uh, this was a problem. And it, it's a, kind of a funny aside. So this next system, so at the first, so Steve Jobs goes and he also takes a lot of some people at a core team of, you know, brain talent, basically from Apple. And but Apple, this led to legal issues because they know all about Apple system and they're going to develop something similar. So Apple's like, you know, suing them and being like, no, you can't do this uh, because you're just going to copy what we have or whatever. So the point being for like a year or so, they couldn't do anything. And so they were just kind of spinning their reels, literally developed nothing. They had no product, nothing like that. But despite all this, Steve Jobs got Ross Perot to invest $20 million in the next 
system, which is has only a 16% share, meaning this was a $125 million valued company that had no product. They just had the Good brain balls. power. Just the brain power. And get this, they also sold t-shirts that had the next. And this, this was oh. making them the most expensive startup t-shirt company in history, I would think. Right? Wow, that's wild. That was their only product at the time. Um, but yeah, so the brain power, though, I, you know, you, you, yeah, there's value in that. People. Steve Jobs, he's got a good track record. $125 million in what year was this day? That's a, yeah. that's a, that's a serious valuation for something that's got physically yeah. nothing. Yeah. And next, next was like a pretty spectacular failure, but also hugely successful in a variety of ways. But well, we can talk about that on another podcast. It's actually quite fascinating. Steve Jobs, amazing marketer, basically. Yeah. I, have uh, you read that the Walter Isaacson book? This was one of my recommendations no, I, for Audible. I, ha- actually. I haven't. Oh, yeah. Great, great. Yeah. Listen, great. Listen, talks a lot about Next. Oh, does he? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I saw one of those Next machines. Um, there's an Apple Museum here in Prague, and they've got basically all of the stuff that Steve Jobs made, and it's it's a nice looking computer, especially for like back in the day. But wasn't it like five thousand dollars? And this was like 1980 something. Yeah, I can't remember. It was it was crazy expensive. I don't remember the exact figure, but yeah. It was it was insanely expensive compared to other computers at the time, which were also pretty expensive, but not anywhere in the same league. So this didn't work for for Berners Lee because no one no one had the next system really, and so he had to he decided to make he wanted to make something that could be used on all systems. But of course, if you tried to implement this really complicated browser on all these different systems, that's going to take a lot of work, and no one's going to do it because why would they do it? Because there's not many websites and all this. So how do you make it? So he went right to the very basic, literally just a command line thing was also could be very quickly implemented on any any system uh and so you could make you know it's just very bare bones inline browser just this command line text thing so you request the web page and then maybe it just spits out all the text in the command line no images nothing nothing else and actually this was the first the first well some variant of this was the first time i ever went on the the internet or the web i should say it might have also been the internet actually probably uh i don't know how i would have used it otherwise so yeah the friend of mine had it and we used it to request phone numbers to do the bart simpson-esque prank calling ah, prank businesses <laughs> like things uh, yeah, yeah. yeah i was quite young at the time like you know, <laughs> 11 or 12 or something like that but yeah, yeah that was kind of fun sixth or seventh grade or something um but yeah so this this basic one uh, got and then mosaic came along there was other browsers at the time mosaic was out but mosaic came along and the key thing about mosaic again it introduced a lot of these complex features, a lot of these really nice features, like the you know displaying images and things like that. But it did it in such a way that you could install it very easily on different systems, and like like a you know an idiot user could could install this. And if you had any trouble, they also had 24-hour tech support, which you call and they would help you get it set up on your system. And so this finally making it easy for sort of the everyman to install a web browser and get it working. Uh, made this was this was the thing that just basically the web exploded after this after this mosaic browser came out and this around the same time there were some other services that were kind of similar this file serving type thing there was the wide area information servers the waste Mm -hmm. and uh, also a system called gopher which was gopher was i think gopher might have been the most popular at the time for santa serving files and it, it had a little bit uh different way of doing things um but but essentially the gopher system was quite popular for kind of doing a similar ish thing but uh but it just almost instantly killed these and gopher gopher didn't help themselves by it was the university of minnesota that developed uh, gopher and yeah. they decided at this point that they were going to uh make it so that if you wanted to use the university of minnesota's uh server the gopher server software you now had to pay for it it used to be free 
And this also made a lot of developers who had developed their own, you know, implementation of the Gopher system for servers think, oh, well, they're going to start charging us to sell this. So everyone kind of abandoned Gopher and kind of went with the web at this point. Um, I don't feel it's unreasonable to ask for money, but when there's a guy who's doing the same thing for free. uh... Yeah, exactly. So everyone, everyone kind of abandoned Gopher. And there's actually really interestingly, 2018 was a banner year for Gopher. Uh, It's still around. There's, I think there's like 260 Gopher servers. So uh, one interesting thing about how Gopher works, I've never actually used it, but it, I've, I've looked at kind of the basics of a high level of how it works. And so, you know, how if you have like your file system on your computer, so, you you know, you have your C colon or I mean, I don't know, I, you know, depends on what type of system you're on. But, uh, you know, people are familiar with that. And then you might be like forward slash documents or, you know, forward slash this. So you have this kind of file structure like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You have this root, or if you're on a Unix system, you know, you have the root forward slash or whatever. And you have this hierarchy, right? And Gopher works just like this. Uh, where you have this hierarchy of files instead of like almost, and it's still like hypertext to to get around, but it's sort of this hierarchical, almost like almost like a file system on your computer for finding things on the Gopher version of the. I mean, you could call it the web, I guess, but you know, it's Gopher. Uh, so it's just kind of this different way of structuring things. So it's kind of interesting, but anyways, 2018 almost doubled the number of Gopher servers from the from like that has been the case for a couple decades. There's you know there's like 100 and something, and then all of a sudden. 2018, there's like doubled the number of Gopher servers out there. And uh, I thought that was kind of random and interesting. Like what's... Do you know why? No, I was like, is some university like start to use it and require all their students to set up Gopher servers or something? <laughs> Maybe it was a class project. <laughs> yeah, or something. I don't know. It was kind of 130 students go out to make Gopher, Gopher, uh, yeah. Gopher, Gopher servers yeah. as part of yeah. a project. And I should say University of Minnesota in 2000 reversed their stance. And now it is once again under the... Uh, you know, free to use type of thing, the, the new yeah. thing. So, yeah. They, they missed, missed the boat, it seemed. Yeah, they, it did. Even now with a great year, 260 servers, I'm guessing there are more of the others. Yeah. So, yeah. so World Wide Web uh, quickly, very quickly became the, the, you know, dominated with the Mosaic and subsequent browsers like Net, uh, Netscape and stuff that came along. And of course, Internet Explorer and all these. And so then it became the de facto service on the internet. And so people think of it as the internet, as Al Gore illustrated nicely there. Yeah. And so but at the end of the day, it is just the, the internet is just the global network of networks. Basically, you have these computers all on it. And then the, the web is just more just like a file server type thing, you know, way of serving files. And then you have the browser end of it that kind of interprets the data that's coming in. It's kind of this whole system. And uh, yeah, so now here we have finally, uh, the so we have the internet to connect all the machines and the email and then the the web to you know transfer around text images and other media and then yeah those were kind of the killer apps that made the internet a thing dude is that it is that how we are now today and that's, that's kind of essentially the internet? that's basically i mean obviously other services i mean you have your phones that you know then made that so you have it mobily everything and not just you know web stuff but apps and things that use yeah. all sorts of different services um so like when you're requesting an app you know, it depends on the app, but they're probably, probably not. They're probably using their own service. I mean, I suppose it depends on the app. Um, they might also just be using the underlying to correct, uh, you know, request the files and stuff. But either way, lots of services all running on the internet all nicely. I didn't just learn about the inventing of the internet today. I learned about the internet as a, like the whole thing. Or like, am I using yeah. the right term there, the internet? Or because like the web and the... email and everything yeah yeah the internet is basically just a network of networks and machines you know at the at the end points love it great so should we do some 
follow-up and feedback from previous episodes? We should. Uh, if people haven't listened to the previous one, we're going to get into the Alt Green. Is that what you called it? Is it actually called the Alt Green? Did no, you look it up? It's not. Yeah, I did look it uh-huh. up. Did a little digging into this. Yeah. Uh, quite, quite, it just, just surface level stuff, but I think I got a satisfying. Other than why, uh, let me, so last episode we were talking about, I didn't even know how we got onto it, but I was saying like how my keyboard has an alt GR key. And you were like, what the hell's an alt GR key? Or <laughs> I don't have this. And mm-hmm. you'd never even heard of this. And I was like, wait, wait. And I'd always had an alt GR key and I kind of knew that it did similar. I thought it was just the, you know, there's an alt yeah. key on the left and an alt key on the right. I assumed it was like, shift it did the same thing but it doesn't uh i it doesn't stand for green i thought it was alt green bunch of people chimed in uh kind of like saying what it stood for i i'm not sure if they were right some people had different things someone i think said it was an alt grave key um (laughs) like i I think no but i don't think grave meaning the meaning of uh you know where dead people are but like, doesn't grave also mean like a symbol? I'm not sure about that. I should have looked it up. Moving on from alt grave, uh, which doesn't seem right, and I can't see uh, I can't see a definition for grave meaning symbol. But I, I have that in my mind for some reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it does stand for, at least as far as I could find out, the IBM manual states that it stands for alt graphic. Sun Microsystems says that it stands for alt graph, which I assume is short for graphic. Yeah. And uh, so then the question we had was, why is it not on US keyboards? Because, you know, yeah. uh, my keyboards have always had them. Yours always haven't. It may be that it may be that I've forgotten that like old keyboards I've had may have had it, but I just haven't had one of those in a while. Maybe I've just forgotten that it used to be there. I couldn't find a solid answer on this, but you kind of speculated last episode that maybe because you are in the US, there's less need for extra characters. Like yeah. in, in German, you might be putting like a, a weird circle on top of a letter or something like mm-hmm. this, or using different currencies and stuff like that. That does seem to be the accepted thing. It's like US people, uh, US people programming things, they never had a need yeah. for the key, so they didn't introduce the key. Mm-hmm. There was also, you know, just you could press control alt instead of just uh, yeah. alt green and just do like a double combo. But what I did find is there are tons of people online asking, how do I do Alt-GR on a US keyboard? So mm. there you have it. But what I did learn in addition to this, and in true Today I Found Out style, going one deeper, is if you press uh, on the keyboard, you know you've got kind of the regular keys, and then you've mm. got the shift keys. Mm-hmm. There are also Alt-Green keys and Alt-Green shift keys. So you can go like four deep. So on a US keyboard, if it's got an old green key, maybe it's a European key, or whatever. So you've got shift, we'll take your C and make it uppercase, right? If you do, uh, sorry, regular is just C. That's using C as an example. If you do shift C, you get an uppercase C. If you do alt green plus C, you get a copyright symbol. And that's the third level. And then if you do alt green plus shift and C, you get a cent sign. So instead of a dollar sign, you can do like a cent sign. So How do you get D. a British pound sign? Because that's one I'm always, I'm, I'm forever looking up the actual uh, code part for that and just putting it in because I, you know. Very good question. All I, I have a, a European keyboard, so it doesn't have a pound symbol on it, but it does have a hashtag symbol on it. And I have the UK keyboard layout. Uh-huh. And I know that if I press hashtag, I get the pound, uh, the, the British pound sterling sign. Um, however, locating the hashtag is something I never know how to do, so I always have to Google hashtag and then copy and paste it. <laughs> so it's kind of a pain, but yeah. there you go. I, I can't enlighten you on that one. So that's that's alt-gr. 
mission right, accomplished. Uh, also, another bit of follow-up. The girl, people who listened last week, we did a very just uh, kind of different thing. Someone emailed in asking whether we would like put their proposal of marriage on our podcast. And we did. And they said yes. So congratulations, Rob and Elizabeth. We wish you all of the happiness in your future lives together. Congratulations. It's bound to go well. He's an aeronautical engineer, right? Uh, I don't know the stats, but I'm going to assume yes, because... Yeah. Well, I yeah. do actually know that if you have uh, if you have a college degree, if both partners have a college degree, I can't remember yes, the percentage. Yeah. It's something like 70% likely to stay together or something. And I think the further you go with your education, the yeah. less likely it becomes, right? Yeah. There you go. Well, congratulations. Well, like, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully you won't get divorced. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Not appropriate, Simon. Uh, should we do some reviews? Yeah, sure. Uh, moving swiftly on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we've our, our contest is over, my man. We've got 208 reviews. Oh, great. So, I'll have to tally that up then. That means for everyone who's tuning in for the first time, basically we said when we got to 200 reviews on iTunes US, we would go through all of the reviews on all the various platforms and find someone to win a $200 Amazon gift voucher. Uh, yes, so that's over. Do leave us a review there. Are we going to do a... Are we going to do a 300 at 300? Might as well. <laughs> okay, cool. Hey, new contest. Once we had the 300 reviews, we'll give away <laughs> $300 Amazon gift card to anyone in our... Yeah. There's a point where we're going to have to stop doing this because yeah. it will get like... No, see, I, I was think listening this, to a podcast I, the other day. It's got 25,000 reviews. <laughs> I, think, I think this still scales because as you get the higher levels right you actually you know you have more listeners and stuff right like because presumably the, the show has continued to grow and so that three hundred dollars you know or whatever it becomes it becomes not as big of a deal right okay no okay i get you but dude like those big points when we, when we twenty five thousand reviews is like hey when we cross over twenty five thousand we're giving away twenty five <laughs> and just imagine we would very quickly if that was the prize how many people would leave a review <laughs> Yeah, dude. Especially if we did it, we can't. We couldn't do it every hundred dollars. <laughs> no, no, that would happen too quickly. But yeah. So and and just to clarify, also in the new contest, everyone who's already left a review, it will also be entered. So you get multiple chances over time. And if we ever do a twenty-five thousand, you want you'll get in on the ground level here. Many many chances. I have to say, I, I think this is quite a smart way of incentivizing reviews like you can leave whatever review you want leave it a one star if don't yeah. i mean you we'd rather you didn't but we're not incentivizing good reviews if you but left we actually, a one star but i'm quite go for it. genuinely interested in the actual genuine feedback as well so like what what they actually don't just say great podcast i mean you could say great podcast if you want but but say why why is it good why is it bad i'm always yeah. very interested to read these things to actual constructive criticism always good we like to know uh, lately, though, we just got a lot of five-star reviews, man. I'm scrolling down. I'm trying... Oh, I found a two-star. You just want me to... I've never read this two-star before. You want to see how it goes? Sure. Okay. <laughs> Simon. I left a comment last week. Oh, no, that's a five-star. My bad. I got confused. <laughs> <laughs> I had gotten pretty good at fast-forwarding past the tangents and the back and forth, but the QWERTY episode popped up at over an hour and... Oh, God. How long is this ever? This is like well over an hour and a half. Uh, but the QWERTY episode popped up at over an hour and 20 minutes and I just can't do it anymore. Most shows I listen to has podcasters going a bit off topic, but this one rambles and falls off the track more than Trump during his speeches. I'll go back to the YouTube posts. Good luck. I, I think this is completely fair and I don't have any uh, 
back and forth on that really because this is a completely different format and we know a lot of people who are on youtube it's much more like bum 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 here are the facts podcasting is it's more rambling it's, it's more a conversation it's, it's a, a conversation, conversation with friends is what is the is the style i think so that is entirely fair and i appreciate you giving us two stars rather than just one or can you i don't think you can give zero but no but uh, that's, that's but, fair if it's not for you it's not for you no and there are different types of podcasts. I mean, you have you have um, different ones where they do a little bit more production and stuff like that. But I don't know. I'd never find those ones as interesting, personally, like when I'm listening. Uh, I like the ones that are a little more conversational than the sort of the highly produced, uh, like the YouTube style, personally. Me too. Or uh, I, I enjoy them as well, but I do. I, I, I listen to a lot more conversational ones. Yeah. Shall I, shall I up, uh, raise, raise the mood a little? Do some five stars. You ready? Yeah. Chris yeah. uh, maybe uh says obviously it's everything you've come to expect from simon and team it's and it's long form so there's plenty of extra that's cool mm. uh eliane eliane i'm not sure my suggestions are all space podcasts now so someone really liked the space <laughs> one nice. she said i came over from youtube and really like your podcast only problem is that when i go to the suggested podcasts it's all about space I wish I had. I, I wish that the suggested podcasts were more random fact history shows. This is something we sadly can't control. Uh, yeah. I think she's referring to suggested podcasts in iTunes, which for some reason are about. I get all sorts of crazy suggestions based on our podcast, which I've never even heard of before. Yeah, but and we need I to do because one of one thing I've been reading a lot of the reviews, and especially a lot when we post it on YouTube. Are, are uh, coming from for coming from women, and I think we need to do like a survey because there I think. I think that perhaps the ratio is quite different on our podcast than to the Today I Found Out YouTube channel. It um, would be weird if it wasn't because on Today I Found Out, isn't it like 85% dudes? Yeah, but I think in the podcast, it might actually be a bit more split, might be even, but we need to do like an audience survey and, and find <laughs> out because I'm quite curious. I'm quite curious now because we get so many now that are just like, yeah. It would be nice because currently yeah, totally. I'm just assuming I'm repulsive to women. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, and this, yeah. This was actually when we were in uh, VidCon Amsterdam. There, uh, like the the YouTube educators were. We were all sitting around at this bar, and Dude, we were, they were surprised we had eighty five percent, like fifteen percent women. They were, yeah, like, they were like, no, what? Like, no, and and uh, this was this was the thing. It's we had like an in depth discussion. What is going on here? Because there's nothing inherently like. Why wouldn't this be interesting to everyone? Like, what is it about that that you know what's happening here? Like, what's what's and and we we did not come with any sort of conclusion at all, other than to note. That Hank and John Green are the one exception, but that I think is just because of the books, you know, the books which primarily are more geared towards uh, women, you know, teens and teen girls and stuff. Um, and did did Hank and John, and we are talking about edutainment here, like educational yeah, entertainment yeah. content. Did Hank and John start with uh, their vlog, right? Their, yeah. Their, their, the yeah. Vlog the brothers. Brother, brothers 2.0 or something was the original original thing. And I think, and I think they're, they're, the fact that there are so they have like SciShow, which has the much greater split, more more kind of even. You think I think that shows it's the same type of content. It's that same. It's not like they change it really, but they're getting that split because they're bringing the audience in. So I think it shows that the you know the ladies are just as interested, but for whatever reason, with all the other popular uh, edutainment YouTubers, it's not. They're not getting it. Uh, so something is it something about the way we're doing the content? Like this is something that we obviously had the very in depth discussion and we came up with no conclusions whatsoever. And yeah. but we're all quite interested to to fix to make it so that it is more appealing to everyone. 
Um, yes, we are literally missing out on half of the planet. <laughs> yes, and this is this. That's, so, what is it about? You know, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I have no idea. We we've delved into this so many times, and I can't, I can't, I can't fathom what what's going on. I've also heard that in general, YouTube is a more male-dominated platform. Uh, yeah, but I've never heard. I've never seen stats to back that up. I, w- I would. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know because it seems like also, I don't know any women who don't watch YouTube. It'd be yeah. Like, Hey, how's it going? Have you heard of YouTube? No, no, never been on yeah. there. <laughs> People watch YouTube as much as everyone else, don't they? This would be a fascinating oh. video, though. Like we should, and that would actually make it like where you know actually do a really deep dive and see if there's been like studies or like see what the data shows broadly. That would take a lot of time. Like this would be a very time-consuming video, but I mean, we might actually get to the bottom of it. We'd have to publish on the today. I found out Meta channel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll do one more review and then maybe we can wrap up mm-hmm. for today. Oh, so better than the YouTube videos. Five star from Owen's mama. Okie dokie. I listened to part of the first episode months ago. I can't listen to music, audiobooks, etc. at work. I can listen to music, audiobooks at work. And then I forgot about it. Recently, I rediscovered it and I'm finding it very entertaining. I like the YouTube videos, especially the longer, more comprehensive ones, like on biographics and visual politics, but I like the podcast better. It's great to listen to at work. And if people are wondering what the hell he's talking about, I also have two other YouTube channels. I was I was saying last episode, we've got to get better at doing our plugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go check those out, Biographics, Visual Politic. But I'm glad, that, yeah, I love this podcast. I'm into it. Yeah. Anything you want to add, man? Or are we wrapping it up there? No, I think that's good. I have no clue what we're doing next week. So nothing there. I had originally something planned, uh, as we mentioned before, and I've decided to abandon it. Possibly. Or, oh, no. Pot for now. I haven't 100% decided, but I think something different. I think. We'll see. Ooh. I'm not. That's I'm a not, solid tease. I am not. I've got some different ideas, but uh, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what, what strikes my fancy when I'm planning yeah. this week. I, I'll look forward to it. Uh, yeah. Just to remind people, head on over to uh, podcasts.todayifoundout.com for the forum, right? For the email. It's podcast at todayifoundout.com. It's also podcast.todayifoundout.com for the forums. forums, Yeah, sorry. Forums? No, it's forums.todayifoundout.com. Or just go to todayifoundout. Or just go to todayifoundout and click on forums. Okay, next time I'm going to print off a little sheet and actually have it in front of me. So I don't sound like such an amateur. No, I don't. I don't. I don't. I often can't remember if it's podcast (laughs) or podcast. together. (laughs) All right. I'll talk to you next week. All right. Bye. Hi, you're listening to The Brain Food Show, the podcast where we talk about stuff.